0: Groupon signs a deal for a new Wacker Drive headquarters. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, about news of the week from the local housing market.
1: The index is still the highest for Chicago that it's ever been. For September, the index shows that home prices in the Chicago area are just about triple what they were at the beginning of the index. It was January 2000.
0: I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, November 30th. Are you sick of not being your bank's top priority? We are too. At Wintrust, we take a different approach to banking. We're proud to be your one true banking partner focused on your unique financial goals that's right in your backyard. Whether you're opening your first account, buying a home, planning for the future, or starting a business, we have tailored solutions to get you there. Stop settling and start experiencing a better way to bank at Wintrust.com. Wintrust, different approach, better results. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial. Financial Corporation Banks, member FDIC. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Dennis, how's it going?
1: Great, Amy, how are you?
0: I'm great, thanks. Lots of things to get into, even though a little bit shorter list than usual, still lots to talk about each of these stories. Let's start by talking about how Chicago is losing its top ranking among big city housing markets.
1: You and I knew this was going to happen. We have talked about this. This is from the Case-Shiller Index, which tracks the national housing market and also the housing market in each of the 20 major U.S. cities. And uh, as we have discussed in recent months, Chicago, which for a very long time, trailed the other 20 cities. There was a five-year period leading up to the COVID housing boom when Chicago, of those 20 cities, was uh, generally 20th, 19th, occasionally 18th. We were way behind. Our prices simply were not growing like other cities. Then the housing boom happened. Then the increases in interest rates designed to kill inflation happened. And a lot of those very fizzy cities started to slow down. Some of them went slightly negative on pricing. Eventually, our home prices were growing the fastest among those 20 major U.S. cities. We had a four-month period uh, when, month after month from the Case-Shiller Index, we were at the top of that list, which was pretty impressive. But you and I discussed every time we talked about it that it probably wouldn't last all that long. Well, it ended. The new data that came out this week from Case-Shiller, which is for September, shows that uh, that streak of ours is over three cities pulled ahead of Chicago this is going to be an interesting thing to watch very interestingly detroit had the highest home price increase in september of any of those 20 cities 6.7% top 3 were detroit san diego and new york and then chicago was number 4 so after 4 months as number 1 we dropped down to number 4 that's all just kind of fun real estate chit chat but the truth in this number is The index is still the highest for Chicago that it's ever been. Um, For September, the index shows that home prices in the Chicago area are just about triple what they were at the beginning of the index. It was January 2000. Um, We're at 197.9, I think. So within the next few months, we will be saying that Chicago home prices have tripled in the 21st century. The 6% that our prices were up in September is, is an improvement over what we've been seeing in recent months. Um, so all of those are great things and, and give us an idea that the vigor is not gone from our market. It's just that some other markets are behaving more vigorously than they were just recently. So that's a way of saying, sure, we've lost our crown, but well, I don't really care because we're still doing very well.
0: Right. Which is important, though, because it would be easy to say, oh, look, we're fading. We've done something wrong. When in fact, it's not the case at all. We're still doing fine. It's just that other markets are catching up to us.
1: Yes, it's true. And the other thing to keep in mind, I think we always sort of need to issue this caveat. Um, the index shows how, how much home prices are growing. And, and I've been talking about when we're at the top in large part because we spent so long at the bottom. But it's also true that not being the market with the highest the fastest rising home prices is a good thing because you don 't want affordability to run away. Um, our colleague at Detroit Cranes, when he reported today that home prices rose in Detroit more than in any other city uh, in September, pointed out that Detroit is still even with that is still more affordable than any of the others in that top twenty and that 's the sort of thing that we really want to pay attention to the uh, we're number one was um, was really just sort of a fun thing to be able to report because we had been number twenty for so long.
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: All right. Well, talk to me about this other story that you reported in recent days that uh, I, I'm sure caused a lot of headaches, and that is about a cybersecurity breach at a major title company that scrambled a lot of real estate closings. I can just my heart sinks reading that because you, you know there's so many things that go in into that. There's not just the paperwork headache. There's the where does your moving van go if you're, you know, if you're changing homes that one day? There's a lot of logistics involved in that, but tell me what happened.
1: Yeah, and that is the problem, is uh, it's been more uncertainty than any sort of danger, so far as we know, any sort of danger to people's financial records. So uh, just before Thanksgiving, the, one of the biggest title companies, Fidelity National Financial, which is based in Jacksonville and owns several title companies, including Chicago Title, which many people are familiar with. Fidelity has about 31% of all the real estate closings in America. Just before Thanksgiving, they told uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission that they had been hacked, Uh, there had been a cybersecurity incident, and they had had to shut down a lot of their systems. This went out first over sort of cybersecurity press And then it finally got to the real estate press. So actually, Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving, I was calling around to find out, were there agents who had closings scheduled that day that got postponed? Um, And what most people said is, well, we don't really schedule our closings for Wednesday. But I did find one attorney who had 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 two closings scheduled for the day before Thanksgiving. In one case, they were able with some sort of Band-Aids and patches to make it happen that day the day before Thanksgiving. In the other case, the buyers said, ah, could we just move it to Monday and let's just hope it's all over by then because uh, Fidelity National Financial's announcement had, uh, to the SEC had said, we expect all this to be cleaned up by Sunday, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Well, get to work mo- the Monday after Thanksgiving and in fact, that hasn't happened. Um, I, started, I, I started getting messages from real estate agents saying, did you know uh, our closings have been postponed? And as I started calling around and looking back at the uh, some more of the cybersecurity reporting on um, Fidelity National Financial, we found that they hadn't gotten it cleaned up yet. Unfortunately, nobody at the company will comment. And at one point, their whole website went to a, an error message. So we don't know how many closings have been delayed. I have sort of anecdotal evidence from eight real estate agents and real estate attorneys I spoke to that um things were getting delayed we thought it was going to be monday morning we get a call oh it's probably monday afternoon we get another call well that's probably tuesday so it's mostly been just sort of the the feeling of well when is this going to happen because as you pointed out people want a lot of certainty about their closing because i got a moving van that is packing up all my stuff at my old address and until i have actually legitimately purchased this house until the deal has closed been funded by the title company, I can't tell the moving van to go to that house or I can't tell them to go in. They might park in the driveway. So there, there is a lot of uncertainty. Nothing has yet been reported on when they'll get going again. Fidelity shut down a lot of their email processes, but what agents and and real estate attorneys were telling me was there was a lot of telephone work being done in its place. One of the reasons this is this is important to know is if you have a closing scheduled in the near future, you could be impacted. But the other is this, is, this is the second big hack we've talked about in the Chicago area real estate industry just in the last few months. In August, there was a hack that essentially made it impossible for real estate agents to get their listings up on multiple listing sites, didn't affect people in the Chicago area, did affect agents in Northwest Indiana. And a big swath of the country. And th- the difference there is that, you know, real estate agents couldn't get their listings posted. Nobody is being financially harmed. It's, it's very frustrating because you can't show people how great this house is, people who are out there shopping. In this case, in the one that's happened or that happened recently, um, as one attorney pointed out, there's a lot of personal and confidential and financial information that is exchanged in the course of. The title company doing its work. And as of now, it doesn't appear that any of that data got taken up by the hackers. Um, we do know one of the cybersecurity publications uh, reported that this was a ransomware attack, that a ransomware hacker was not saying what it had until it tries to get ransom out of this company. So I think probably we'll be hearing more over the course of the next several days. The primary thing for people who are in the real estate market right now is check who's doing your closing, check who your title company is. And if it's Fidelity National Financial, there's no reason to walk away from it, but you should just make sure that you know the belt and suspenders are all there. Just as one example, one agent told me that because they hadn't gotten any certainty on their closing, the attorneys for both the buyer and the seller We're discussing, well, could we do a lease back? Could the buyers lease the house from the sellers until the closing actually happens? If your closing is supposed to go through Fidelity National uh, Financial or Chicago Title or some other brands that are owned by them, and you can find all those online, it's probably a good idea to find out do we need to have sort of a plan B just in case.
0: Well, uh, we will talk more about that as as you know more, as more becomes apparent for now. I have a couple of homes of note to talk about. One is the condo where Mike Royko lived that has been rehabbed and is up for sale. Tell me about it.
1: You know, I get a kick out of this property because um I wrote about it when it was for sale several years ago. Mm-hmm. Those buyers now have it on the market and when you look at it like you don't really think of Royko writing about his own home. Right. You think of him covering politics and the Cubs and crazy stuff going on in Chicago and and really having that that eye that he had for what's going on in Chicago. But he did actually write about this condo. Um, He lived there from 1981 to 1985. Uh, It's on Lakeshore Drive. He bought the condo right after his first wife died. He didn't say that it was part of grieving or anything like that. But what he did say is that it was his, remember, it's the early 80s, fern bars, Mm -hmm. all that sort of thing is going on. He described himself as condo man. He said that he used to be Bungalow Man, which is really much more of his persona, and he became Condo Man living on Lakeshore Drive. He described himself as an anthropologist like, uh, like <laughs> Margaret Mead right. living in this culture that was unfamiliar to him. He's living near Singles Bar Man and Jogging Man and all these. I mean, it's so early 80s that it just, it's, it's yeah. really pretty hilarious. So he lived there from 81 to 85. The records don't show what he paid for it, when he bought it, or when he sold it. He then goes on to marry his second wife, Judy. They end up buying a house in Winnetka. But this condo is in this 1920s building. I don't know what it looked like when Royco was there. I do know some of the features are original, so they would have been there when he was there. That includes a beautiful uh, ornamental plaster ceiling in the library, great wood paneling. This cellar rehabbed that plaster ceiling. Apparently it had some damage or age. She did a lot of rehab. She replaced, there were 28 windows in the unit. She replaced all those with modern um, replacements. She did a lot of rehab of the place since buying it in 2020 for 900000 She's now asking $1.4 million, which again, the, the price reflects the extensive rehab she did. And what I think is interesting is when it was on the market several years ago, that was in uh, 2019, I wrote about it. It was being sold by the people who bought it from Royco all the way back in 1985. And they didn't really push the Royco name. I found it in the records, talked to them. In this case, the listing really sort of announces this is Mike Royco's old condo, including there's a photo. You don't often see this. In the listings, there's a photo of a little display table with a book about Royco, a book of Royco's columns, I should say, right there on it. So it's kind of interesting to think that It's this celebrity property from nearly 40 years ago. Uh, But Royko certainly is a presence, a character who hovers over Chicago even today.
0: Oh, certainly. And you can see photos at chicagobusiness.com. Including, um, do you know how much of it is rehab? I mean, I'm looking at this beautiful wood paneling in one of the sitting room areas. Is that original or is that part of the rehab?
1: the paneling that wood wood is original it's been reworked refinished and that sort of thing but it's original and i think above that paneling is where you see the plaster ceiling that she worked on yeah
0: it's really beautiful i mean yeah. i think
1: one of the big upgrades is putting in the modern windows which you know help with your heat loss and and she did a lot of a lot of that kind of work to it bringing it up to date
0: another home i want to talk about is uh music legend nat king cole's childhood home in Bronzeville. Tell me about this. Yes.
1: Also rehabbed um, and in a sense rescued. Mm -hmm. It was in pretty bad shape. Uh, This is on Vincennes Avenue in Bronzeville. We'll talk about when Nat King Cole lived there, et cetera. But a developer bought it in 2022. It had changed hands several times in the five years prior. When you look at the real estate records, you find and I found some old photos. I did pass the building a few years ago, so I remember that it wasn't in great shape. That's not what you can really use in reporting. But I found old photos in Google Maps and others showing that it was in pretty bad shape. So this developer buys it. He, he uh, operates rentals on the south side and elsewhere. And he bought the property um, in 2022 for, uh, I think it's $400,000, and did a gut rehab. Um, One of the things I did in the story, you can see, is now it's this great classic graystone with this beautiful metal parapet recreated at the top. So I linked to somebody's, like I said, I passed it years ago, but I don't have evidence I can provide of what it looked like. But I found this old photo on Flickr from 2019, and you can see a lot has been done to the exterior. I assume that just as extensive was the work on the interior. Not having been in, I can't guarantee that, but really looks like a classic Chicago Greystone. Inside the apartments, there are three. It's a three flat. One is duplexed down into the basement. That is the one that just rented on Monday. That's the third of them rented for $4,000 a month, four bedroom. The two above it are single level uh, apartments. They rented for about 3000 a month, all just this, this fall. As I said, the last one, the last and most expensive just rented on Monday. So it's nice to see this because this building was like so many um, in disinvested parts of the South and and West sides, a grand old classic 19th century graystone building that was just kind of declining. And Mm -hmm. here it's been restored. And the the agent who represented the apartment said, you know, aside from the fact that it was Nat King Cole's home, I just like to see These buildings on the south side brought back to life, and and I agree with her. But this has the special distinction of being where Nat King Cole grew up. It's a really interesting story. Nat King Cole, whose whose last name actually had an S on it, the Coles family moved up from Alabama, part of the Great Migration, 1923. He's four years old. At some point, shortly after that, they move into one of the apartments in this building on Vincennes. I don't know which of the three units they lived in. Um, So they lived there from the early 20s until, uh, again, he was four years old at that time. When he's in his late teens, he has dropped out of high school. He went to Wendell Phillips, where a lot of important musicians went to high school. He's dropped out. He's formed a um, musical group with his older brother, Eddie. They end up in Los Angeles. He shifts his focus to starting his musical career in Los Angeles. That's 1937. So 1923, to 1937 are the relevant years of this graystone related to Nat King Cole. I found an article saying that uh, while he was a teenager, he, he would climb out his bedroom window. I don't know which bedroom, but he climbed out his bedroom window to go listen to them, sit outside. He was too young to go in, sit outside some of the great music clubs on the Stroll, which was several blocks of State Street, and sort of dream of becoming a musician. And, and again, he went to uh, Wendell Phillips, He trained under Walter Diet, who is sort of the name behind a lot of our great musicians from that era. And then he goes to Los Angeles. Uh, The family also moves out of the building. His father was a Baptist minister and got a church in North Chicago. And so father and mother, the Coles, lived in North Chicago until they died. Nat King Cole doesn't really come back to Chicago except to perform. But as a lot of people know, I mean, he was one of the most, first of all, one of the most charismatic, but also one of the most phenomenal performers of the 40s, 50s, 60s. I I included in the story his nomination to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2000, where it talks about how he, uh, he had dozens of hits, multiple Grammys. I think he had four Grammy Awards in lots of different genres. Some of his songs, for people who don't know. Unforgettable, Get Your Kicks on Route 66, Mona Lisa. There's a Christmas song that people are probably hearing right about now. Um, Really absolutely phenomenal music. And then in the mid-50s, again, based on this just charismatic person he is on stage, he gets a TV show. It's the first nationally broadcast television show hosted by an African-American, 1956. And what you find out when you read about it is... Many major advertisers refused to advertise on the show because it was hosted by a black person. So the show lasted only a year, but there are just so many hits that roll um, through his career. I said to somebody in the newsroom, "When if you have time, just sit down and look at the Nat King Cole songbook, because you know it's decades ago now, so it's not right on the tip of your tongue. And it's really impressive. I mean, he was really something. And he learned to play the piano from his mom here in this graystone.
0: That's so cool. You know, anytime you've brought in a, a house to talk about that has such a cool story to it, that has you know, such wonderful history, you're, you kind of can't help but root for the house. You can't, you can't help but to.
1: Oh, totally. Yeah. And, and you know, this really is a victory. So this house has one of those Chicago history markers in front of it. And people have been stopping there for a very long time. But what you would have seen until just a year ago was, oh, yeah, well, this, this thing could use some help. Now you're seeing a grand, really wonderful Chicago Greystone and seeing that it has a legacy. And I think that's really a story of Bronzeville, Chicago's South Side that I like to tell. And I would like people to think of when they stop in front of that building. I should say it's 4023 South Vincennes.
0: Now all the people can go. Everybody can go see that, see that building.
1: Yeah, we don't usually share right. addresses, but this one is all over and it I mean and it's got the the landmark marker in front of it. So I feel yeah, that's right. okay sharing that address. Generally, we withhold address, street addresses.
0: Indeed. All right, well Dennis, what is coming up in the week ahead?
1: You know, it's a busy week. There's a really phenomenal uh, River North condo coming on the market. I have a couple of things coming up um, that I think we'll have a lot of fun talking about in a week.
0: Sounds good. All right. Well, I will meet you right back here this time next week and we'll talk all about them. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, borrowers in Illinois have some of the highest student debt in the country. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Discover the future of technology with This Is AI, a podcast brought to you by the AI experts at West Monroe. It's time to stop hearing about AI, and it's time to start applying it to your business. Explore AI's diverse applications from basic concepts to complex use cases. Get practical advice and real-world insights. Listen to This Is AI on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or watch on YouTube. Learn more at westmonroe.com slash thisisai.
1: This is the Cranes Daily Gist with Amy Guth.
0: Cranes Danny Ecker reported that six months after it warned investors about its ability to stay in business and said it was paying to get out of its massive headquarters lease, Groupon has signed a deal for a new and much smaller main office in the loop. Ecker reported that the online deal company confirmed to Cranes that it's subleasing about 25,000 square feet in the office tower at 35 West Wacker, where it will move in January from its nearly 300,000 square foot headquarters at 600 West Chicago Avenue. Groupon is subleasing the Wacker Drive building's 25th floor from media conglomerate Publicist Group, which has been trying to offload more than half of its massive office in the 50-story tower. Ecker noted that, according to a spokesperson, Groupon has signed on for just 22 months, and the short-term sublease deal comes as the company nears the end of its lease at 600 West Chicago. Groupon disclosed in May that it paid a $9.6 million fee to terminate its deal at the end of January 2024, two years before it was due to expire. Groupon also disclosed at the time that there was substantial doubt that the company could remain a, quote, going concern, raising questions about whether it would even need office space at all. In a statement to Crain's Groupon interim CEO and board member Dushan Shinkapal said the company, quote, has always had a thriving office culture, and this move to a space that is better aligned to our new hybrid working ethos is a great step to kick off 2024 for our Chicago team. Ecker also reported that Groupon reported a net loss of $81.4 million during the first nine months of the year, a big improvement from a $180.1 million loss during the same period in 2022, but still far from the $90 million in net income it reported during the first nine months of 2021, according to regulatory filings. Ecker also reported that publicist Group earlier this year put 350,000 square feet of its Wacker Drive office up for sublease, more than half of the 685,000 square feet it leases in the building on a deal that runs through the end of 2030, according to marketing materials. At the time, that offering surpassed Groupon's 291,000 square foot sublease listing for its 600 West Chicago offices as the city's largest block of available office space on the secondary market. Dennis Rodkin reported that city officials are reigniting their effort to get someone to revitalize the old Stockyards Bank building, an oversized replica of Philadelphia's Independence Hall that towers over Halstead Street south of Bridgeport. Rodkin noted in reporting that on December 13th, the Chicago Department of Planning and Development is holding an informal webinar for potential redevelopers of the 35,000-square-foot building completed in 1925 at 4150 South Halstead. The asking price is $1.9 million. Development proposals are due January 12th, and Rodkin reported that city officials said they have no specific preference for a use type, such as housing or office space. And that also available is an empty lot across the street, a little under an acre where the Stockyard Inn stood from 1913 until it was demolished in 1971. The Department of Planning and Development Commissioner said that potential developers can apply to buy the bank building with or without the empty lot, but cannot buy the lot separate from the bank. Rodkin also reported that in 2000, the city acquired the already vacant bank for $200,000 through eminent domain to prevent demolition. Since then, several efforts to get the building, which the city designated as a landmark in 2008 back into use, have failed to launch. Notable among them were City Hall's 2006 pitch to get it reused as a banquet hall and steakhouse, and a 2017 concept to make it into an energy bank generating renewable energy for nearby businesses. But as Rodkin points out, one likely obstacle to redevelopment is that the building is essentially a shell, its red brick exterior and tall spire concealing an interior that has been stripped nearly bare. Rodkin also reported that nearly a century ago, the Stockyards Bank, founded in 1868 and also known in the past as the Livestock National Bank, spent half a million dollars, which is equivalent to nearly nine million dollars in today's money, to build its new fireproof bank building near the entrance to the vast Union Stockyards. Rodkin noted that with the Tudor-style hotel, it presented a sophisticated gateway to the 375-acre stockyards packed with over 100,000 animals at a time. The bank's design by architect Abraham Epstein is an homage to, but far larger than, the mid-1700s Georgian building in Philadelphia where the nation's founders debated and signed the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the U.S. Constitution. The bank closed in 1965 and the stockyards closed In 1971. According to the Department of Planning and Development Commissioner, the bank building has not been reoccupied in the more than half a century since. I'll discuss this story with Dennis Rodkin in more detail in an upcoming episode of Crane's Daily Gist. Danny Ecker reported that co working provider IWG plans to open more than a dozen new locations in the Chicago area next year, adding to a massive bet it's making on demand for shared office space in the wake of the COVID 19 pandemic. The company announced it will debut 17 new flexible office locations over the next year in buildings throughout the Chicago area, primarily in the suburbs, as well as two more Illinois locations in Peoria and Moline. Switzerland-based IWG, which operates the Regis Spaces, Headquarters, and Signature co-working Brands, will add the new offices to its collection of 64 locations already operating across the state. Ecker noted that it's part of a larger wager IWG is making that office space leased on short-term flexible deals has a bright future as the normalization of remote work continues to weaken demand for traditional workspace. While big office landlords are impacted by companies shrinking their office footprints, demand for co-working space has been resilient thanks to companies incorporating shared offices into their broader workspace strategies and individual users looking for low-risk offices they can lease with little commitment and across a broad network of locations. Ecker pointed out in reporting that even embattled co-working giant WeWork, which filed for chapter 11 bankruptcy protection earlier this month, has many locations that are performing well and stand to continue operating as the company reorganizes. He also noted in reporting that over the past year, IWG has added 600 locations globally and 300 across the US, according to the company. Its total footprint now includes about 4,000 locations in more than 120 countries. The company earlier this year announced plans for four new locations in Chicago, all of which have already opened. IWG said it will open a Regis location in West Suburban Westmont and an HQ brand location in Southwest Suburban Frankfurt early next year. Other offices are slated to open later in the year in Arlington Heights, Downers Grove, Elgin, Libertyville, Lyle, Lombard, Naperville, Oakbrook Terrace, St. Charles, and Vernon Hills. The end of the pandemic-induced pause on federal student loan repayments means that roughly 43.5 million people in the U.S. are once again facing payments on student debt. That includes nearly 1.65 million Illinois residents who, on average, carry some of the highest student loan debt in the U.S., Crane's Jack Reeve reported that in total, Illinois borrowers owe more than $63 billion in student loans. The mean Illinois borrower owes about $38,349, which is well above the national average, and puts it behind just five states. Maryland, where the mean debt is just over $43,000. Georgia, where it's just under $42,000. Virginia, which is just over $39,500. Florida, just under $39,000 and South Carolina, just over $38,000. The states with the lowest average per borrower debt are Wyoming and Iowa, with both just over $30,000, the mean in both states, South Dakota and Oklahoma, just under $32,000, and West Virginia, just over $32,000. And that data is according to a recent analysis of federal student loan data from higher education research group Degree Choices. Grieve noted in reporting that last year, President Joe Biden announced a $400 billion plan to forgive payments for tens of millions of people in the U.S. However, the Supreme Court blocked that plan this summer, and the Biden administration has been forced to take smaller, more targeted steps towards student loan debt relief. Grieve noted that on Tuesday afternoon, approximately 813,000 borrowers received an email addressed from President Biden informing them that their student debt had been forgiven. The president has forgiven roughly $127 billion in student debt for about 3.5 million borrowers since taking office. Grieve further noted that student loan repayments resumed in October under a 12-month on-ramp program, and borrowers are encouraged to resume their payments now, but also noted that financially vulnerable borrowers who miss payments will not be penalized until September of 2024. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.